Welcome to the Mining Your Business podcast, a show all about process mining, data science, and advanced business analytics. I'm Patrick, and with me, as always, my colleague, Jakub. Hi. Hey, Patrick. Today's episode is all about what a customer success manager does, why this position exists, and maybe even a bit of poker. Joining us today is Jan Lenge from Salonis. Let's get right into it. Patrick, I hope you're ready because today we will be interviewing our first non-processing guest, uh, a customer success manager with whom I was uh, very fortunate uh, to work with on the project. Uh, and the name is Jan Lenge. Jan, thank you for coming to the show. How are you doing? Hi, guys. So first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I'm doing very, very well. Uh, so thanks for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you about process mining. Me too, me too. Um, so, uh, what do you say? Let's get right into it, shall we? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. First, obviously, our listeners maybe would, what, would like to know uh, who you are and kind of how you got to where you are. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, to everyone uh, tuning in, my name is Jan Lenge. I'm a customer success manager here at Salonis. And I've been at the company for uh, over a year now, um, which for a company that is only about nine years old is a substantial amount of time, <laughs> as, uh, as, as you might uh, imagine. Uh, so we, in a company that's scaling up this fast, there's constantly new people coming in. So you do feel quite old if you've been there for a year. Uh, from my professional <laughs> background, um, I started off in strategy consulting, where I've been, uh, where I've spent basically almost three years doing that beforehand, uh, consulting mainly in the automotive industry, but other ones as well, uh, on yeah, corporate strategy topics uh, for large customer Fortune 500 companies. Jan, uh, when we were uh, actually applying for the job in process mining, me, both me and Patrick. We had no idea what we were signing up for. So for us, uh, for me, it was three years ago. For Patrick, it was uh, roughly a year, and a year and a half ago. We essentially signed up for a job uh, that said process mining, data science. All sounded nice, but we really knew nothing about it uh, at the time. Uh, was this also the case for you? Or you kind of knew about process mining thanks to your background and what's going on there? And you actually uh, went for such a job uh, on purpose. Well, so for me, uh, it did not go as 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 that uh, at all. So I I also didn't know much about process mining, but uh, without knowing it, I was already uh, involved in what I would call like part of the pain points and part of the problems. Mm. So as a strategy consultant, very often we have to um, consult customers on um, yeah process optimization and improvements. And I remember having to stay up to like four in the morning and blew up huge process paths uh, on a huge <laughs> wall and, and, and do that all by hand. I actually have pictures of maybe I can find that later for you. Um, how I glued that in a wall and we, we spoke to, uh, to, to customers uh, regarding that. And it was, it was a mess. And then once uh, I started looking for exit opportunities in consulting, uh, I had this friend who worked at Salonis and who did a referral. He told me uh, all about the company and about what they do. And it, It was like an immediate click for me when he explained it because it's like, I always thought to myself, there should be like a more efficient way to visualize this and to like break down this complexity. And why are people like us as consultants uh, doing that by hand 
um, kind of like finding the needle in the haystack and still costing roughly like an incredible amount of money to do that, like two and a half, three thousand dollars a day. And um, that's a lot of money for a paper it was, and glue. It, it was <laughs> absolutely. And um, yeah, so that was that was the aha moment for me. So that's when I got in touch with uh, with Salonis and with process mining. And I knew like, yeah, that this technology is here to stay. This is the future and I need to be part of it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's not efficient about paper and glue, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, you guys uh, know probably better. Uh, Jan, so you applied for a job in Salonis, you got the position. Uh, so you are now, your position says that you are a customer success manager. What do you actually do? Well, so that's actually an excellent question. And I actually have to begin every customer engagement exactly uh, answering that. Um, so many people don't know what a customer success manager is. In the SaaS industry, it's actually kind of like a set position. So you will be seeing these guys uh, appear more and more and more. So what a customer success manager actually does, um, in a sh the short answer would be uh, whatever it takes to make a customer successful. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. well, I'm glad you said short because uh, let's get into it. We have the job responsibilities from your own website here. And I would like to read them to you. And you can just say if this uh, is accurate or if this is categorically false. So um, number one on the list, uh, work directly with a portfolio of customers to define success and help them drive significant value out of Salonis. Absolutely true. Yeah, I do that every day. <laughs> okay. Develop a deep understanding of customer needs, use cases, and objectives in order to ensure that the Salonis platform is properly leveraged to achieve them. Yes, without that, nothing will work. Okay, great. Um, build and maintain strong relationships with all key customer stakeholders. I would say that's the biggest part of my job. <laughs> We will get to that later for sure. <laughs> okay, monitor and report on the overall well-being of customers, tracking key health and usage indicators. Yes, so that's basically how we're measured. Ah, okay, I see. Serve as a point of escalation for key customer issues and ensure swift resolution. Yes, that's, uh, I would say the customers, at least customers think that's the only part of our jobs or the biggest part of our jobs. <laughs> and we help out in that a lot. We okay, do great. use you as our escalation points as well. So uh, yeah. uh, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Drive customer yeah, advocacy through case studies and references. Yeah, that's also very, very crucial for us. So we, I do that. I do that uh, at least once or twice uh, a week. You got three more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we have uh, ensure high customer satisfaction and retention. That's true. That's that's the main goal for the whole thing. That's why we exist. Right. And evangelize the capabilities of the Salonis platform, identifying opportunities for further growth within customers while working collaboratively with the account team to position upsells. I would put an effort yeah. and emphasis on word evangelize. <laughs> yes, that's a great word to use here. Spreading faith, really. Yes, the faith of Salonis. It's it. You 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 would you would be surprised, but that's actually exactly what it is. So so the last point, I would say absolutely yes, but um, I'm not doing that alone by myself. So there's obviously an entire team that bring that, that I can bring in and that that, that help me do that. Um, And I do want to emphasize on the word evangelize because I do think uh, think it is that way. So I would say, for instance, for technology, so for technology such as process mining, 
the biggest competitor for Salonis is not actually uh, like a different competitor, like a different entity. It's the, alter- it's the alternative of doing nothing. And that's what most customers are used to. So it is literally evangelizing. I sometimes do feel like a Jehovah Witness <laughs> that goes door to door, spreading the word of data-driven insights. <laughs> and, we, and most people literally have to believe before they, 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 they engage. Um, I will attest to this that um, it is for a lot of people, a lot of um, customers that we work with, a different way of thinking. So I think um, this kind of um, evangelize is very apt for, them, for talking about this. Absolutely. And last on the list, last but not least, work with the services teams to facilitate the onboarding of new customers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's basically how me and Jakob met. <laughs> <laughs> Jan, great, if, great. if we dissect this into, let's say, a day-to-day activity, so could you actually tell us, uh, I mean, these uh, sentences sound very well and very profound, but could you dissect for us your uh, week? How does it look like for you if you make somehow an average of everything you do? So what is your job? Yeah, okay. So um, to, get, to be a bit more concrete so you can imagine what I do, I think it, would, it wouldn't do it any justice to just tell you how a week looks like because every week for me is different. And the reason being that my tasks during that week evolve based on uh, the customer needs and where the customer stands at their uh, point of the customer journey. So like sometimes it can be... Um, helping solve a, a service desk ticket. Sometimes it's about uh, facilitating exchanges with our product organization. Uh, sometimes it's drafting a, a document or uh, a presentation for their management. So literally, like it's, it's different every day. But what I can do for you, if you're interested in, is tell you how I see the key aspects of my job and how would that translate into the things that I need to do on like any given month or year. Please go ahead. All right, so um, let me see. So I would, I would actually segment this into, let's say, two parts. So I would say we have an internal versus an external part of my role uh, from where I am sitting, so always from, from, from my perspective. So for instance, externally would then mean um, between me and the customer, right? So my external responsibilities are to ensure that the customer has the right setup uh, to grow the process mining initiative at the firm. So basically, that, that it all begins with securing executive sponsorship so that we speak to the person who bought the product and um, that we align with that person on strategy, goals, KPIs, objectives that they want to solve so that we know that whatever we are deploying um, and then later um, trying to optimize actually feeds back into what that executive or that person who bought the product actually wanted to see. Next up would be, for instance, ensuring that the customer has the right, let's say, structure to to leverage that capability. So I would begin with, for instance, a governance structure. It's it's actually solved by simple questions. So who do we report to? Who's involved? Um, And how do we do things? So that would be um, the governance structure. Uh, Sometimes they have an idea, a vague idea of of, of how that should be set up. Uh, If they don't, it's my job to, to, to... Probe deeper, make sure that they know what that means. And if they don't have the right setup, then we review it and then we set it up. I also help out creating operating models. So ensuring that they know how to actually use the software. Um, And um, here's a caveat that I would like to say. So 
Part of that is not just like knowing how to use the software and, uh, you know, drive the mouse and where to click and so on, but actually how to do process improvement. If I can give you an example of that, um, that would be, imagine you find something in your process that needs to be optimized, right? So you, you find something that's not doing so well and you want to optimize that. Imagine it's something like Maverick buying. I don't know if your, your audience is familiar with what yes. that is. We did try to explain it in last episode, so <laughs> I hope they do. <laughs> All right, perfectly. But so imagine, so there's many things at Salonis that you could, uh, or, or in process mining that you would, um, that you can maybe automate or, or solve with the click of a button. But there's some things, for instance, uh, Maverick buying, you just can't solve with the, with the click of a button. So someone has to go back into the organization and review how they do purchasing and maybe write a new purchasing policy, right? Um, so that's a process optimization that's outside of the um, of the data-driven insights you generate with Salonis. So you need to make sure that what whoever found this inefficiency directs that knowledge to someone who can actually change that for the better within the organization. And that's, for instance, something customers don't anticipate because for them, they just bought software, right? Um, yeah. So, so I help them set up like an operating model so we know exactly how to deliver those insights into the organization where they are needed so we can transform that to impactful change. I also help out setting up everything where like that's beyond what you guys do. So what I like to tell my customers is what's life going to look like after the technical implementation? So when you guys disappear, mm -hmm. so uh, who manages this and who does things? And they usually say, yeah, it's the users. Okay, but who tells the users what they need to do? Um, so we, and who enables the users? So usually we need like an, um, a very coherent enablement plan um, that kind of like maps out the user journey within the process. So thinking if, of, of, of a user, I've never heard of this. How, how do I get involved in this? So who reaches out to me? Do I do the online trainings first? And then what happens next? Do I have kind of like a, let's say, digital Sherpa that uh, takes me through the entire process and teaches me how my dashboards look like? <laughs> Usually we use you guys for that. Um, then um, who, who helps me if I have an issue later on? Um, is there like a, a portal I can ask questions? Who do I give feedback if I have feedback? So ensuring that the, this enablement is all there. I help them set up, for instance, communication plans. So basically defining how often do we speak to our user groups, um, in what cadence, via what, um, let's say, medium. So do we have like a standing call where people can ask questions? Do we have workshops with them? Is there like a monthly email we send out? So how do we engage with the community? So I help them set up a plan for that. And then lastly, the two, I know I've been speaking for a long time now, but... Um, no problem. I help them plan out the initial rollouts. So usually a customer buys, let's say, two, three, four processes, and they need to define how they're going to roll that out. Are they going to roll out all four simultaneously or in a sequence? And if a sequence, which sequence? So I help them detail that out. And then lastly, I help them also out in planning out their expansion. This is actually the last point where I want to say that it gets a bit more in detail because customers usually purchase uh, our software to improve one process that they have in mind, right? And we tell them um, it's easy, for instance, if you're in finance to expand to other finance processes. But our tool is actually process and industry agnostic. So that means um, 
if you want to imagine you're the finance lead, if I tell, if I ask you, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could optimize your production? Are you still the right person to speak to? And uh, probably not in this case. So who can, how can we involve people um, or the right people to showcase our capabilities um, to see if they would be of value to their divisions and then, um, yeah, expand into them? Uh, so I have two things to, to, to say. One, I'm stealing digital Sherpa, by the way. That's great. And um, <laughs> second, um, you said that the customer thinks they're just buying software, but then you're talking about all, how all these things kind of go with it. Um, are a lot of the customers aware that just, you know, how much transformation that actually needs to go into this in order to have a successful um, um, process mining initiative? So some yes and some don't. Um, so there's like super professionalized organizations where we arrive and they say, hey, our IT department has 200 tools just like you. And they've done this 100 times before. And we know how to deal with this. We got it. Those are actually the, let's say, the easy customers to deal with um, because they're kind of like a self-cleaning oven, right? They, they just, <laughs> they know, they know what to do. Um, they require a little of my input and I'm just there as kind of like a sparring partner or a connection to the firm. Um, but then there's customers that, uh, which is way more, way more common where like some CTO, CIO or CFO bought this and then they dropped it on someone's lap. Usually a very, very technically savvy person. Um, but someone that has never run a project like this ever. And hmm. uh, they have no clue um, how, how to run an initiative like this. And they're helpful for our advice. But just for the sake of completion, um, before that, I told you, like I have the internal versus external role. There's also the internal Salonis part of my role that, that comes in as well. So for customers, for instance, that don't um, require as much attention, this is where we would focus on my internally facing role at Salonis which is why basically Salonis hired me, um, which is kind of like a two-edged role. So like I secure internal resources for customers at Salonis. Um, as you know, a growing, growing startup, um, a growing unicorn actually. Um, Salonis requires, uh, yeah, has, has, let's say, a lot of capacity constraints. So you always constantly are fighting for internal resources. And it's my job to advocate for my customers internally. I facilitate best practice exchanges across different customers so they can speak to each other and help each other out in our community. I enable exchanges with our product division. I help solve tickets. But especially what uh, my boss is most, um, let's say, keen on is I ensure, in the end of the day, the renewal of the license um, so that money continues flowing in. I drive upsell opportunities, so expand. And I also promote customer success. So if you ever see like a lot of customers, the first touch point with Salonis is that they hear that other customers are doing well. But for that to happen, someone has to first A, do well, and B, speak about how they're doing well. That's also part of my role. I think you, I think you touched a very interesting topic here. Uh, so you said that you are uh, measured by your, uh, by your boss, by your management, by uh, the customer retention and some upsells. Uh, I also, when I first met you, I asked you this specific question and uh, I would like to hear it again from you. Is there a difference or do you see yourself as different from uh, a simple salesperson who's selling the software uh, compared to what you are actually doing? Yes, absolutely. So the, I, I would, 
I wouldn't say that I would say my, my role is completely different to some extent. Um, yeah, it's completely different, I'd say. But <laughs> so <laughs> there is some overlap. Um, but I think the angle from which we view it is different. So for a salesperson, it's more about identifying uh, what the customer has as pain points initially and sell them the appropriate tools to fix it, right? But their, their part of the journey is actually just um, creating awareness of how our solution can fix their problems and ensuring that they believe in it and they sign off, right? And now they hand that over to me and I need to make sure that we deliver on that promise. So um, it's not just calling in and trying to sell them more stuff. It's I'm, I'm actually here for the long-term part of the relationship. So making sure that the customer, yeah, pushes the software through the process and makes yeah, a success out of this. I actually see a big parallel between what you do and between what us in our company do as a data scientist. So uh, since we are that startup you were talking about, we are still about 30, uh, 30, 30 employees here, uh, 30 colleagues. So our job as a data scientist is do the implementation, which would translate in your world to uh, ensure the customer success. But then on the other side, if we do our job well and we uh, the customer likes us and we uh, can offer him more in the future, that's our upsell. So eventually we can come out also slightly salesy out of the equation, but uh, for the good of our company. So essentially we could say that we are kind of salesperson too, but at the end of the day, everyone who's doing any job is to a certain extent uh, a sales guy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the, the beauty of, for instance, your job and my job is that um, it's very honest and it's very honest in one way. Customers only do repeat business with you if you delivered something of value to them and they enjoyed and liked working. That's, it, it all boils down to that. And if we do, like, if we provide a bad customer experience, then the customer just goes to the competition or cancels the initiative and then there's no more money to be gained. So there's no room for fooling customers. It's very, very honest. Uh, speaking of customers, uh, what do customers actually uh, consider to be a success? When you come into their company and you do this all process mining, when is that moment when the customer says, all right, so this is going well, I have something more than just a nice BI tool, but actually I'm, uh, you know, I consider this to be a success. Yeah, so I would say um, it. So when we speak about the customer, um, we sometimes <laughs> we, we we think about a logo, right? Uh, a huge company, I don't know, telecom or something like that. We forget that mm. it, that's comprised out of like thousands and thousands of people working within it. So there's different faces of the customer. So um, it really depends on the goal that the customer had going in and. Um, what their expectation was. So for instance, um, a CFO is a customer for us that, that bought it. And for him, seeing a return on investment is great. So if you pay, I don't know. I don't know. Imagine you would buy, let's say a fictive, fictive example. It doesn't reflect on our prices, but imagine you would buy 300K software and you can generate 300 million in returns. Is that a success for you? Yes, I would say so. Um, if you have... Well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it, sure. I mean, saying that in a simple way, yes. If you're saying, for instance, if your goal is to kind of like visualize your process or um, understand how your end-to-end -end processes is, then maybe success to you means 
um, number of processes connected. Um, if you want to change the way that, um, that your people uh, work in different, let's say, source systems, and they spend too much time on that, maybe the right measure would be adoption. How many people are actually using that? Or user satisfaction. We measure how, um, how the people that use this um, report. Are you happy with this or are you happier than what you were before? That would be then a measure of success. And that would differ from the person to, that I speak to. Um, so that would be like top-down looking, right? If we look at bottom-up, a customer could also be what we call a champion internally, who could be the person running the initiative. So for them, a success could be, I secured all the resources and I have the data connection uh, set up and stable, and I can see the things that I wanted to see in the platform. An IT department for them, that's a huge success. I've connected the thing, the thing works. We're done here. Um, and for a business user, it might be, this actually answers the questions that I have every day. So it's it's really depends on how you slice and dice it. Okay, and the, how do you define success? Whoever within the organization has the strongest pull and speaks the loudest and is willing to speak to me, whatever their definition of success is, that's what we go with. <laughs> okay. That goes back to the evangelizing. <laughs> we, we, we take yeah, what we okay. can. <laughs> If we go about the definition of success, uh, I really liked what you just said about uh, different levels of uh, hierarchies in your customers and also in your own organization. Obviously, everybody has a different goals, different agenda, different uh, tasks to take care of. Uh, if you have such a project of process mining, how do you actually go on uh, to making sure that all the parties, not only the implementation parties, but especially the customer parties are aligned so that we don't have two parties, uh, let's say the higher management and then the business who's actually using the tool, who are basically going head to head against each other and fighting for uh, what and how should the tool be used and what it should be used for. And eventually even like the, uh, the taking out the, the value out of it. So. How do you define these goals at the beginning of the project? So that's an excellent question. And the, there's no cookie cutter answer to that. Um, I would say this is where, where we do the business balancing act, right? Uh, where you try to speak to every customer, like every, every, every internal customer within that customer. And then you try to convey everyone else the information that was relayed to you by someone else. It's a very, very tedious task. It takes way longer than you imagine. Uh, but in the end, I think it's the single most important piece of the puzzle. So for instance, the good thing here is most, um, the higher you are up the ladder, the more important you are in an organization. Usually the less you, the, the least or the less you care about how this is actually being used and the more you only care about the end result. So what I like to do at least is I try to get from the top people some guidance or let's say what I would call like kind of like a, a frame, right? Like a frame at which they would like to see results, like a framework, basically. And then within that frame that they define, we have flexibility to move. And then that flexibility I would like to keep and pass on um, to the business uh, divisions. And they, can, and they can use that and transform that into what that means for them, translate what that means for them. And then when they do that at the medium level, we would then relay that on how would that look like in dashboards and in analyses 
for the actual user. That's the one way, like top down. But then bottom up, you also need to have some feedback loops because we, we do get it wrong sometimes. And that's when users have to, you have to generate these channels within that organization structure that you create for users to give feedback and say, hey, so this is not going well, this should be different so that we can review that at the bottom level and then at the yeah medium level and we can like distill that information and relay that maybe to top management. Um, so that's why we also need direct access to all parts of the spectrum. And we need to have a cadence um, that we speak to business users, to the people running the initiative in the middle, but also to the top tier executive who doesn't have a lot of time. But at least, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, uh, once a quarter would be ideal. I think, I think, I think more than I, I would ever wish for. So thanks. Yeah, so um, are there ever cases of where top and bottom are not as aligned as they should be? And how do you go about re resolving this misalignment? So, um, yes, that's usually the default state. Um, because the thing is, in an ideal world, those two things sound like the same and it's very easy to connect them. But there's a lot of, uh, so, so there's a lot of uh, goals that go hand, hand in hand and match, but there's also a lot of conflicting interests here, right? And here's the sad truth about it is that um, one person at Salonis, um, a customer success manager that's foreign to that organization will not solve that for that organization. So that misalignment uh, will have to be fixed to some degree internally. Um, what we can do is point that out and uh, bring that to the attention of, of the relevant parties. And if possible, we can facilitate that via a meeting. So for instance, what I offer my customers is, um, especially the ones running the initiatives, is that when we speak to an executive, um, that I can be part of that call and I can maybe relay some of the information or so, some of the, the things that you probably cannot do that if, if you are like an internal person. So I can be kind of like, uh, I have that outside in voice. Yeah, exactly. I have that outside in view and I'm the middleman here. But in the end, if they are not committed to solving it themselves, then uh, we won't solve that for them. It's impossible. Yeah, I have to agree with you that this is something that, especially by the end of the implementation. So again, uh, from the data scientist perspective, this is something I'm struggling with quite often. And that is uh, making them know that uh, we do the implementation, we help them learn how to use it, but eventually the adoption and the usage of the tool has to be from within their organization. We cannot keep forcing them and keep, uh, you know, pushing them into using that. So that's something, uh, it's, as, as you say, it's a sad truth, but it is what it is. Yeah, and to me, for instance, especially in your position, um, the problem with having your digital Sherpa is that um, if someone always carries everything for you, you're only along for the ride to like give feedback or like take that Instagram picture, right? But if the Sherpa relays to you that, hey, once we're down here, the second mountain you climb yourself, that changes the game, right? So maybe you should take notes along the way or maybe carry a few pots and pans so that you kind of accustom and acclimate yourself for the next climb. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, so you are in this position very often. So uh, 
were you ever a part of some heated discussion or some escalation when something like this adoption didn't work and you had to deal with uh, getting it over the top? What do you mean by over the top? So uh, in making sure that the adoption goes well, uh, there will be, you will sometimes get into the position when uh, the, it doesn't go well, the adoption. And then there are some escalations. It goes from top uh, to down and from down to top. Are you sometimes part of this? And uh, how do you will deal with such situation when there is tension in the companies and uh, when uh, management says that you are spending a lot of money and we don't see results and the business says, Yeah, but we actually have results with it. And then you have this uh, this clash of opinions and you are in the middle of it. Uh, have you ever experienced something like that? And could you tell us how does it feel and what do you actually do? Yeah, so uh, it doesn't feel great. Um, it's starting off right off the bat. Doesn't feel great. Um, <laughs> I notice very often this is um, a communications issue. Um, and so I just to reflect on the bottom up that you mentioned. So. This is something that a lot of business users don't think of too much, but um, it's like just generating value uh, helps you in your job, but doesn't necessarily mean that your boss sees that, right? So you need to report that value and you need to do that frequently and you'll be surprised how often people forget to do that. So I've, I've seen cases where we've generated incredible um, results, but they were just never um related to management and management just assumed that this was a like not going well and it was about creating that channel right um so it will be on aligning again on like uh, what the let's say finding the yeah the underlying issue the root cause uh for for these problems sometimes it's the other way around that um we get top down goals um pushed down and they end up being let's say, allocated to a division that can't do anything with them because they just lack the power to do so or they lack um, the capabilities to do so. Those situations are way more difficult to deal with because the people that are then in charge of executing and they don't have the resources are not the people also doing the decisions in the end. And that's that. then you have to go through a very painful process of... Uh, Going into meetings with 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 both parties, there's uh, usually like some finger pointing going on, and um, yeah, it's not not always are we able to uh, secure a very happy resolution. But um, yeah, I think the way that I deal with that is I, I try to, to to be transparent and I try to go on an open dialogue, um, and I try to use myself as a resource for them that I can maybe relay some information, rephrase some things um, and focus on the communication aspect of this because the decision-making power ultimately lies within the company of the, of the customer. Just like in any other relationship, uh, communication is the key. <laughs> it's It sounds cheesy, but it's true. It's true, it's true, it's true. Right. Uh, Jan, is there something that we as data scientists can do better uh, to support you in such situation or project so that we work uh, we work together in the project uh, that's also how we met and since because of that i think you can be very very blunt with me i can take it don't worry and if you could just tell us uh, both to me and patrick what can we do first to make your job uh, easier but also to because we are uh, pulling the same rope together 
We also yeah. want the, the adoption to go well, as for us, that's also obviously business. Uh, what can we then do better to, to, pro, to provide for the customer and to, to make sure that it goes well? So I think the first part of that is alignment. So the more you keep me in the loop and involved on, on the issues that we have, the more I can help, um, I can help fix them, right? The second one would then be also the level at which you communicate. So um, what I mean by that is that uh, your job is very technical in nature and technical in the sense of the, of, of, you know, the, yeah, the software part of that, but also um, very technical in, in the sense of like the coded knowledge that you gain from, from that business unit at which you're deploying at. So, you know, a lot of the acronyms in, I don't know, accounts payable and like the goals and so on. Um, and maybe if you do a lot of like production use cases, you understand a lot of like how, um, how a production and assembly line works. That doesn't necessarily mean that I understand it. Um, so if you can, if I, if I can may, if I may say so, if you can dumb it down a notch so I can, um, decode what that means, um, and you keep me involved in, in, in this communication, I can help you, um, identify who are the parties that we should be speaking to, to solve your issue. Uh, or the issues that you're facing, um, and maybe facilitate in that as well, or pull internal resources at Salonis. So towards me as a customer success manager, the best thing you can do is involve me and communicate in a way that, that, that I can help you. That's the first one. And another thing that I think um, data scientists in general can do way better, especially in the technical implementation part, um, and let, let me give you a, a quick caveat here, that's not your case, Jakub, but I see that with uh, many other people. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> I, I have to say, but it's uh, focusing on the user experience as well. Um, because very often we're, we're very detailed on, okay, what has been scoped and what do we have to put into paper uh, and, 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 and produce? I mean, not to paper, but uh, to dashboards. Um, what we need to put into dashboards. And then uh, we say, okay, so that was in scope. This is what we delivered. Here's the, the list of documentation, you're done. But then actually enabling the business users who will be using this, um, not only getting their feedback on, do you see the right things, but actually teaching them, okay, this is where you click. This view helps you with that. This helps you with this. So the more you bring this, let's say, technical knowledge to an understanding to a business user, the better feedback you will receive for them to, to generate more value to them. And the easier the transition from building the dashboards to actually like delivering it will be. So focus on the enablement piece. Good point. Good point. Fair. <laughs> I find that there's always a little bit of a disconnect when building dashboards and showing them to customers for the first time and then them not knowing exactly what they're looking at based on the tables and data and stuff that they've provided. So there is a bit of a disconnect and I do see that it does need a little bit of explaining and a little bit of digital sherpaing to um, get them there. Can I give you a, a, a like I've seen it work for 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 another customer in a very cool manner because we're used to having like the frontal presentation where someone goes to the dashboards and explains everything and clicks everywhere. But what I've also seen work is after that in a different session, they pick up someone random and say, "Hey, we're going to give you control. You guide us through what you see." and click what's, uh, what is intuitive to you. And how do you interpret that? And then we decode that. I like to say, uh, 
I, I like to do that with some customers and I like to push for that as well. I call it the IKEA approach because I think <laughs> if you if you're if you're if you both sit together and you both assembly the furniture together, there's like more emotional buy-in. This should be a comic on your website, you know, with the guy scratching his head, you know, and calling IKEA. This, this should be calling Salonis and stuff like that. that. That's great. Hello, IKEA. I'm missing a key. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm missing a screw. Can you please send me a new screw? It's A1478. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the only way you know that like a screw is missing or like how hard it is to assemble it is if you're like part of it, right? So yeah, give, give the user the mouse. Yeah, what we like to do sometimes in workshop is just uh, throw up a slide with three like quiz questions. Like, hey, um, find this, filter on this, and go to this dashboard. What do you see? And then they just go and do their thing, and then they report back, and everybody says, oh, I see this number. And then when somebody says a completely different number, we obviously look into what they did and where they went wrong and just kind of see, oh, you know, interactive uh, going along with the meeting. And the good thing here, that I think that's an excellent way to do it as well. Um, but so. I think we need to come up uh, as as we progress and we and we shift to working digitally. We need to create new ways to keep our audience engaged and ensure that they actually are paying attention. Um, because we're we're in a world where we're used to so many distractions. And back then, pre-pandemic, I could lock everyone in the room. And like, if you're looking at your phone or doing something different, like people notice. I, <laughs> I don't need to shame you. People shame you. <laughs> you people know, but if you're in a virtual meeting, it's very easy to like doze off, um, still look at the camera, but open up your emails, um, check your phone, something, something of that nature. And that happens way more often um, than, than, than we care to admit. And that way we need to like create, I think the more digital we work, the more we need to create like these assurance loops that this information mm. has actually gotten to them and has been processed. and. So I think yeah. an explorative approach is good. Like, put them on the spot. This is wisdom. It's, uh, it's difficult to make uh, presentations interactive. I mean, even in the one, like, in-person presentations are also hard to make interactive. I think it's way harder to do them digitally. Yes, agree. Part of everyone's struggle at the moment. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Uh, Jan, uh, we are slowly, slowly running out of time uh, with our show here. But uh, I would also like to ask you if you could give us some uh, real-life example. Again, you don't really need to mention any names, uh, as we that's not the goal of the podcast. But if you could ask uh, a real-life example of what went well, and on the other side, what went wrong in your projects, and what could be some lessons learned in these uh, occurrences, and what did you make out of it eventually? Absolutely. So an example of a customer where things went uh, really, really well, um, I would say the customer had bought the software um, that we had a very strong executive support. So our sales team did an excellent job at uh, not only selling, but actually converting, uh, evangelizing, let me use that one, uh, evangelizing the executive. So he would really give us the support that we need. And because of that, because we really evangelized that guy, we were able to get all necessary resources, uh, support, FTE, everything that we needed. And they started off thinking big. So the, big, the bigger you think, the more resources you give anything in life, basically, um, the better you nurture that, uh, let's say, plan to grow, right? 
So what, they do, what they've done is they created an entire new organization that would be running process mining, um, a center of excellence. They made sure that they had business people in it and IT resources, um, and that they had enough of those to deal with everything. They predefined the problem that they wanted to solve. Of course, that's only the initial stepping point, but that already sets you up for success. So they said, we want to see A, B, C, and we are going to start in process uh, X and then move to Y and then to Z. Z. And because we had that sequence already predefined, they already had aligned with the business unit for the first process and uh, with their process owner. And it was a breeze because everyone was aligned. Goals were, were um, predefined. Um, we knew exactly what we would be solving for. Um, users were communicated too early. And those are the customers that like generate incredible uh, value with our product in relatively short time. So those guys like succeed because they pour resources into it, right? Awesome. So that's an example of a customer that does well. And the, on the other side, the disastrous customer. <laughs> so um, here I have to lean uh, on the uh, cautionary path. <laughs> I don't want to show fingers, point fingers, but uh, this guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. No, I'm kidding. Um, but um, so I'll tell you, the, the worst customer, the worst customers are customers that uh, never begin in the first place. Um, where you sell them shelfware. And um, so basically, like, they, they make up excuses for why they should not be um, working on the projects immediately. A typical excuse is, oh, we're migrating data to, um, to another uh, instance, to another platform. And when, when that's done, we will uh, connect Salonis to that. So we have to wait for that first part to be done so we can do the second part. Okay, how long will that take? Yeah, so three, four months. And then it takes a year. So um, <laughs> that happens sometimes in large organizations. Plus. And then maybe the person who was assigned for the project left the company, uh, the exec switch, switched roles and whatever. And then suddenly you're left with like a piece of software that no one knows what really to do with, how it goes into the, the, the structure that they dis- discussed a year ago. And there's no one with like a clear ownership. So you have to, because in my, in my role, I still have to ensure success at that customer. My role becomes like fishing for someone to take on this new responsibility. So, um, so that's a customer that sells itself for failure. So you just stand there in the company in the hall and like giving out flyers, please use process mining. <laughs> <laughs> so you would be surprised, but I actually have uh, taken a flight to uh, a different country to meet with whoever was willing to meet with me to speak about this at uh, a customer's <laughs> to find if we can identify who potentially could take this over. Oh. So <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say here is um, it is evangelizing. <laughs> no, okay. um, but no, no, but um, that, that was just an example. It's a very fringe example. It uh, doesn't necessarily have to translate into full truth. Um, there's, of course, different ways. That's how I perceived it, at least. But uh, let's say a more clear example, a more practical example of something that I've seen as well is, uh, for instance, that, um, that they, did, they did not anticipate certain IT requirements uh, from the beginning. Or, for instance, they didn't get approval 
from the workers' council if they wanted to use, uh, you know, employee data in the system. So then all of a sudden, this roadblock uh, means a delay of six months or three months or two months or however long it takes them to discuss it internally. So that's something that's not your fault. And it's something that's not my fault. Um, we're kind of like just waiting in the start, like in the start lines, but we yeah, never hear exactly. the shot, right? Um, so that's already like is a huge inhibitor um, to, to start, which, um, which of course will inhibit the, the time to value. The next one would be to not have a clear um, business need for, for the process that you connect. So it becomes very, very explorative. So, okay, we connect the process, we create dashboards, we give it to people, and then so what? What's the so what of it? So what do you generate out of that? And um, yeah. those are the ones that struggle later to justify the return on their invests because it's difficult to, to frame that in, in a business value or, or in technical value. Um, so those are the ones that set themselves up for fail failure. And then um, there's also examples where you, for instance, we tend to do with software what we always do with software. Uh, we dump it on the IT department. Um, but their goals are usually not, let's say, business goals. So um, there's a misalignment on goals. And that works for some software. That works for Office 365 perfectly, but that <laughs> doesn't necessarily... Um, reflect for, for a software like ours that has to be used by business users uh, in order to generate value. So when there's a misalignment on that, um, it, it becomes more difficult. For sure. Um, speaking from experience, some IT users are not very keen on uh, doing some extra work for things that they're not going to be using themselves and they don't see the point. And that can be a bit of a rift sometimes in the project. Yeah, and I think also I think for instance with every with every new technology that you introduce at any firm at any company, um, you do also have to give it give in a little invest and invest in terms not only in financial to buying the stuff, um, but also in terms of flexibility uh, within the firm. So for instance, what I see very often happening in IT departments is they buy it, they buy the software, and then they have like a like a transfer internal transfer pricing model, right? Where they would say, "Hey, I bought it for. I'll give you a fictive example: a hundred thousand. Um, and if you want a twenty percent piece of, of of the users allocated to that, then you need to pay twenty percent for that, right? Mm. Um, so that makes it very easy for IT to cover its costs if, if if they can get it to someone. But if you don't create an incentive um, for a business for for a business uh, division to actually take that, um, you set yourself up for failure because these guys." They have to then justify uh, the deployment of the software uh, to the cost of that. And then sometimes for them, they're like, yeah, we're busy doing other stuff anyway. Maybe we don't take that. So then you have an IT department sitting with the software in their hands and they just don't have any takers, right? Um, so for those guys, maybe a little bit of flexibility in terms of the internal pricing, um, internal transfer pricing model would, would be ideal. Mm -hmm. And those are the customers uh, or, or, or organizations, when I speak to them, that I very strongly recommend focusing on creating a new transfer pricing model, if possible. And if need be, I help them create one. Great. You did make our job very easy, on since uh, <laughs> we didn't really have to ask you everything. And you just said the right words. Uh, at the end, I think Patrick has one more question for you, right? Yes. Yes, I have 
been told that if I do not ask you this, um, there will be consequences. So um, I heard that you have a history in professional poker. Yes, absolutely. Um, so so um, I, I kind of wanted to know, how do you get into it? And how does, if at all, does that help you with your job at the moment? Uh, okay, so um, it's a very unconventional uh, career path to take. Um, I started playing professional poker when I was 18 years old. And um, at the time, I had dropped out of high school to do so. Um, and then later on, I, I finished my high school degree and went to college and everything. But how did I get into it? I actually started playing at the kitchen table with friends and got better and better and better at it. And then eventually started playing smaller tournaments, which turned into bigger ones. And then actually the big break was when someone approached me and um, uh, offered me a sponsoring deal. So I was uh, scouted uh, the old fashioned way. So the Cinderella story got picked off the curb. <laughs> and uh, that's how that started. Um, it's it's a very fringe kind of career. Um, it's very financially rewarding, but it's also very strenuous. So um, the travel gets gets very very exhaustive. So you every two three days you travel to a different location to play a tournament. Um, you you constantly are on are on the grind. Um, you play for eight, nine hours a day. You have a break. Uh, if you get eliminated from a tournament, then you actually get to see the city where you're in. Um, and uh, there's a lot of like financial pressure because uh, especially if you're dealing with the big leagues and you're playing with a lot of money, uh, sometimes you're sitting there and then you're playing, I don't know, with a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. So even though it's not your money because you probably are sponsored, like it's my case, then... Um, it's still daunting because sometimes you're betting like the amount yeah. of like one or two houses, like on a hand <laughs> of cards. So it's a very surreal experience. And I would, I would say that it does help me a lot with my job because, um, so I got professional training, uh, during, during that time on, let's say code reading, uh, NLP. So neurolinguistic programming, uh, maths and statistics, uh, everything in that nature. Right. Um, hmm. so it helps me a lot to, um, decode people to know when people are being truthful or not truthful. So that helps me a lot. Um, it helps me a lot in terms of negotiation. Um, so I have to negotiate very often uh, with people. And I think in the end, um, if I would boil poker down to one thing, it would be you find risk adjusted returns. But I always try to like reduce risk first and then maximize the return within that risk bracket. And I think hmm. um, that view, that uh, analytical view of, of things, uh, help very well in what I do on a daily, daily, daily business here at Salonis. Awesome. That's great. Uh, Jan, uh, this was golden. I really, really appreciate uh, you coming here and talking about all this stuff, not only about poker, obviously, but also about process mining and your role. Uh, Because we are really, really already done with the time, I will have to say thank you once again. And uh, for our listeners, uh, thank you for listening to the episode today. I hope it brought you the value that we are trying to give you through our pro podcast. And if you have any questions, just reach out to us on uh, Minding Your Business uh, podcast at google.com. And we'll be looking forward to the next episode. Uh, Patrick and Jan, thank you very much and uh, see ya. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.